This is the final passage on the Olivet Discourse. So Jesus has been on the Mount of Olives. This is uh, near his death. If you recall, he's already done his triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday, which is coming up soon in our calendar. And uh, he is now inter- interacting with his disciples on the basis of their question. When they ask, when is, when is the kingdom happening? When is the sun returning? When is this all going to take place? Jesus has spent chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew explaining the answer. So I'm going to give you um, kind of a framework for thinking through some concerns I think we should have as we come to this text. So there's a question of when, and, and it has to do with his kingdom, because there's, it's clearly he's going to set up his kingdom. So we want to ask the question of when. We want to ask the question of who. Okay, the who would be maybe two answers. Who is the king, and who are the people he's king over? All right? Then we want to ask the question of what does his kingship look like? Maybe we could, if we, if we go to P's, I could do this maybe a little bit better. Who is the person ruling? What people is he ruling over? Where is he ruling over them? Place. And how is he ruling over them? Power. But one of Jesus' primary questions asked was when. And one of his first words out of his mouth in this last concluding statement is when. And so I want to start with that question when and work through the text by focusing on those, those questions of the kind of the who, the people question. What does this look like? His power question. Where does this happen? The place question. So let's just start with the, the when and, and go with timing elements here. Look at it with me in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, what's that next word? Then he will sit on his glorious throne. And Jesus is clearly telling his disciples that there is a kingdom coming that is not yet here. So his point is, is that there is a timing to this kingdom, and it's not now. In fact, if you go to the book of Acts, they're still waiting for it. They're saying, hey, when is your, when is your kingdom coming? He goes, hey, that's not something we need to talk about the when. And he moves forward. So they're still waiting for the kingdom in Acts. And I think we can safely say, based on this text, that the coming of the kingdom is when the king returns. I could just plagiarize Tolkien, right? The return of the king. It'd be a good title for the sermon. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. I just call your attention to that word glory there. When he comes in glory with his angels, then he's going to sit on his throne of glory. When Jesus first came, Philippians 2 describes him as coming in a humble manner. That he was meek, that he is lowly. In fact, as he comes to Jerusalem in in Matthew 21, he's riding on a donkey. This is to fulfill the prophetic plan of God that the king would come to the daughters of Zion, that means the inhabitants of Jerusalem, meek and lowly, humble, riding on a donkey. But their king is coming to them, riding on a donkey, and what do they do? That's this week. 
that happened a few days before this text, is Jesus comes to them, presents himself as their king, enters the temple, gets rejected by the leaders, and they ultimately do what to him at the final days of this week? They murder the king. Now, Jesus says that is not the end of the story. That's the middle chapter. What's the end of the story? This verse gives it to us. The return of the king. He's coming back. He's coming again. That's when he will reign. So this theological idea that Jesus Christ is currently reigning is, is, a, is a mixture, and, and it brings about a faulty interpretation. Is Jesus currently reigning? <laughs> Trick question, right? You guys catch it? He is currently sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He is currently sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. That is not what Jesus is speaking of here. He is speaking of a different kingship. In fact, when you look at the text, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on whose throne? His throne. Where is he at right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father's throne. I think that would be the same throne as the eternal throne spoken of in the Old Testament. That is, God is the universal king. It's not as though God is letting this world roll through its timeline with no one at the steering wheel. God is in absolute perfect control of this whole world, including all the rebel sinners in it. He's king over it. And he reigns in this universal kingship over all of creation. But there's a more particular king and kingship that Jesus is speaking of that is waiting for the time when he comes back. When he comes back, notice the adjectives here. He's coming back with glory. He's coming back with angels. And he's going to establish a glorious throne. By the way, don't think chair. What does he mean by throne? I mean, does anyone think that God is in heaven sitting on a throne? The answer is yes, I'm sure. There's some of you, and you're going like, oh, should we not think that? <laughs> God is not physical. He is not material. God is spiritual, which means he has no body. He's omnipresent. There is, at least pictured in Revelation, a throne room of God. But I think we can be too literal on this sense. The point of throne here is what? He is king doing king things. He is sitting on the throne over a people in a place exerting power. That's what a king does as he sits on his throne. All right, you guys tracking with me so far? I think if we look at the when and correlate with this all of Scripture, the, the answer becomes incredibly clear in Old Testament and New Testament, Testament text, and I don't want to labor the point uh, so let me refer you to Revelation 19 and 20. If, if I can just recall your attention to Revelation 19, this is the end of the time, right, where Christ is returning in wrath, and he has a holy army coming with him, and a sword coming out of his mouth, and the name written down his side, and he's coming down from heaven. It's this massive army that's from heaven, and Revelation 19 has this army coming through and establishing Christ as the power defeating all of enemies. Revelation 20 then 
The epilogue to the battle is what? Jesus is reigning and ruling for 1,000 years. That's Revelation 20. If we were to go to other texts in the Old Testament, I, I think the timing is really clear. Let me take you to Zechariah 14. We're going to come back to Zechariah 14. So if you're, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, we're in Matthew. Go back one. We're in Malachi. Go back one more. That's Zechariah. Some of those Old Testament minor prophets are like one page thick. And you fly by them one way, and you fly by them the other, and you fly by them again, then you just stop and you just listen. <laughs> trying to get you to Zechariah. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming. That's a chilling statement for an Israelite to hear because usually when you hear something like that, that's talking about a day of divine consequence, which usually means you're in trouble. That's like when a child is messing around and his dad says, don't make me come over there. And then dad says, I'm coming. <laughs> Verse 1, build a day is coming when the spoil will be taken from you. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. Does that sound like Matthew 24? It's exactly Matthew 24. They'll gather against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house of Israel is going to be plundered. The women are going to be raped. Half the city will go into exile. I want you to flow down to verse 4 with me. On that day, let's go back to verse 3. We shouldn't skip that. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. When he fights on that day of battle, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. That's what happens in Revelation 19. Look in verse 9 then. What happens afterwards? The Lord will be king. That's Matthew 25. When he comes, then he will sit on his throne. Okay, so the question when is answered. Not with a date, not with a year, but with a, a, a sequential. When he comes, then he will reign. He is currently not having come, therefore not reigning in the sense that Matthew is speaking of. So I think we have, we have an obvious question and answer when I say, who is the person who's reigning? No one in this room is probably going like, ha, ah, yeah, that is a, that is, man, I, ooh. we're talking about Jesus. We've been talking about Jesus the whole sermon. You guys know it's Jesus, but it's better to understand what Matthew wants us to think because he wants to think us, have us think more precisely about who Jesus is than simply that it's Jesus. Come with me to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1, Matthew tells us where he's going. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What's the next phrase? The son of David, the 
the son of Abraham. Defines him as Davidic and Israelite. Come down to um, when the angel speaks to Joseph in verse 20. The angel calls Joseph a son of David. So we talk about who the person of the Lord is. Who is Matthew proving a case for? It's not just that he is Jesus. It's that he's Jesus the son of David. This is a literal fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to David that there will always be one of his offspring on his throne forever, and that they will rule Israel forever. By name, he mentions Israel. Now, if you're David and you hear that promise, you know what you're thinking of when you hear the word Israel. You're thinking of Israel. You're not thinking of any spiritual future fulfillment. You're thinking of the people, the nation. You're thinking of Israel. You're thinking of your brothers, your biological brothers. You're thinking of, you're thinking of Dan, the squirrely tribe that can't stay put, that doesn't follow its defined boundaries and breaks its boundaries and goes up north because the land is better up there. Them, those are the people you're thinking of. You're thinking of the 12 tribes. So you come to, to Matthew chapter 2, and you start thinking about this, this Davidic king. Do you know what Herod hears and says, i got to kill that guy? The wise men come, and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? It's a very interesting parallel here. What does Herod then want to do? He sets out to kill him. When we jump forward to Matthew 27 and Jesus is on the cross, the Roman king having tried to kill him in Matthew chapter 2, now we have the Roman agent killing him. What is pinned above Jesus' cross as his conviction statement? He's king of whom? The Jews. Jesus is killed by the Romans because he's the Jewish king. He's Israel's king. So we ask the question, when? And we come a clear answer. Jesus will be king when he comes in glory with his angels. Zechariah adds that, physically setting foot on the Mount of Olives, cracking it in two. And he will be king not just over Israel, but what is Zechariah? We looked at that and we kind of jumped ahead of ourselves, but Zechariah 14.9 says he'll be king where? Over the whole earth. But Matthew says, and makes a clear point, he's not just king over the whole earth, he's king of, the, king of the Jews. We'll try to sort that out in just a moment. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to keep pressing that point that Zechariah 14.9 makes. Before him will be gathered Whom? All nations. What did Zechariah 9 say? He's king over the whole earth. Son of man comes back. He sets up his glorious throne. His throne is a kingdom that covers the whole of mankind. And there is not one person who he does not declare, I am your king over. He says that to all humanity. In fact, that's really clear in the text. Look at how Jesus explains. 
It says, before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right. This is the place of privilege and honor. Like Jesus is being at the right hand of, fa- of the Father is a position of honor and prestige. So the sheep, you want to be a sheep. You want to be on the right. The goats are on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, and we walk through the judgment then as he judges both the sheep and the goats. Right, so he judges the sheep, those on his right, and he affirms them. And if you look at the concluding statement of affirmation, verse 40, the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so he welcomes them into his joy. He welcomes them into the privilege. Verse 41 then, to those on the left, what does he do? He says, depart from me, you cursed. I just want to stop for a moment and, and meditate on this with you. Jesus is king, not just over the Christian. Who must obey the king? The whole earth. That includes unbelievers. So, so when we come to questions of morality, like if you have an unbelieving friend at work that's talking about moving in with his girlfriend, your counsel should be, don't! Your king will be angry with you. Wait, what? I don't have a king. You just don't know it, but you do. I mean, when a baby is born and they're four weeks old, I guarantee you, they do not think, she's my mom. Mom knows. The baby doesn't know. And through instruction and training, that baby learns to know not only who her mother is, but what it means to have a mother, to obey and honor her, to be cared for by her. Right? But, but the child is accountable, so it's not like when that child is a year old, reaching for a sharp knife, and mom says no, and then teaches the baby by giving a little slap on the hand to teach the baby no, and the baby's like, wait, hold on a second, who are you? You have no right. You're not my mom. Well, actually, let me explain to you genetics and DNA. I am your mom. This is not how this happens. Because you are mom, you act as mom, and you discipline as mom, or for those of us who aren't moms, you grew up with one probably or had one at some point who taught you what it meant to live with a mom. There's a king who is king whether or not he is known or honored or obeyed. Sheep, they're, on, they're, they're honored, they're blessed, they're, they're praised. Goats are condemned because the king is king over the whole earth whether or not it acknowledges him. It has massive implications for how we interact with the world. As you share the gospel, you need not convince someone that they should judge whether or not Jesus is true. You better warn them he is true and they're accountable whether or not they think he is true. In other words, we don't want to lift men up as judge over whether Jesus should be their king. Again, a child does not debate with the mother. The mother tells the child. 
And I think as agents of God, sometimes we tell the child to adopt the king. Rather, we should communicate very clearly. He is the king. Whether or not you like him. And he will be your judge whether or not you like what he judges. So run to the king. Give him your loyalty. Because he is your king and there is no other. There are no other contenders for the throne that will last. There are no other people who can be an alternative for safe harbor from his wrath. You need to come and beg mercy and give loyalty to the king or you are in trouble. Okay, so person, the promised offspring of David who is named Jesus, who is born from Joseph, well, not born from Joseph, but legal descendant of Joseph, who is the son of David. We have Jesus Christ, the promised fulfiller as king of Israel and king of the whole world. Let me just press the point in terms of the people, not simply or not merely the whole world. Come back with me to Matthew 19. He makes it explicit that it's a literal Israel over which he is king, particularly. Matthew, 29, uh, Matthew 19, excuse me, verse 28. Peter saying a very Peter-esque statement in verse 27 gets his response in verse 28. Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, when is that? When he returns. You see that pre-millennial return there? He returns after this battle and then his kingdom is set up? That is, return, then kingdom? It's not post, that is, kingdom, then return? It's not awe, as in a spiritualized kingdom? He comes back, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, and then reigns in Jerusalem, according to Zechariah? If you look here in verse 28 again, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging what? The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are about 74 uses of Israel. None of them refer to the church. Not one. There are a couple debatable examples, but particularly like one in Galatians that's probably the most debatable. The, the, the grammar, the context, the theology demand you to take it as Ethnic Israel, not a spiritual church. Here, it's undoubtedly Israel because he defines it. It's what type of Israel? It's the 12 tribes of Israel. That's an ethnic descendancy from each of the sons of Jacob, with Joseph having his two sons stand in his place. So we have these 12 tribes of Israel being governed by whom? The disciples, this has not happened yet. They're not governing, sitting on um, subsidiary thrones with him, governing the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not yet. In fact, this is a reward for the apostolic work, which implies that this had to happen after the death of the apostles. So when he comes, they will rule and reign with him means Jesus has a coming kingdom 
in which there will be people governing other people on this earth. When does it happen? After he returns. Over what peoples? The whole earth and particularly national Israel. Not just Jewish people. Right? But Jewish people as a nation, as a nation governed by these 12 apostles. That is, there is a restoration of the nation of Israel. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 2. It's a sweet prophetic word about the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, James in our equipping hour has been talking about the fact that often God's meeting place is on a mountain. Some of you discovered recently that Eden is described as being on a mountain. God meets with his people at Mount Sinai. And, and this picture, even Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is the hill on which the temple is built. So when he says here in verse 2 of Isaiah, the mountain of the house of the Lord, all of you who are in equipping hour should be like going ding, ding, ding. This totally makes sense. Like this is where people meet with God. But the mountain of the house of the Lord here is particularly speaking of Jerusalem. And so it's lifted up. And all the world, look in verse 3. Many people shall come and say, let us go to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, or Israel is that the same idea there. The house of the God of Israel, that, we, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that's the hill in Jerusalem, so out of Zion shall we go, excuse me, shall go the law, and the word of the Lord shall come from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes among the peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a sweet promise. Jesus Christ reigns from Jerusalem, the capital city of the whole world. And from there, he dispenses the Torah, the law of the land, and teaches people the word of God. Wouldn't it be cool to have Jesus as your pastor? <laughs> That's the picture, isn't it? Like, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, not the Bahamas. Why? Because Jesus is there. Well, what are you going to do? We're going to hear him teach. The king is going to speak. And not through an agent like a pastor, not through the word, which is also one of the ways in which he speaks to us, but we are going to be taught by the king in Jerusalem. And the whole world, all the nations are coming because this is the king's capital. This is where the king dwells, and we are going to go to the holy mountain of the king to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the king? When Jesus tells the apostles when 
he comes. Then he will sit on his throne. There's this backlog of theology that crashes on them in a way we just miss. If you're still in Zechariah 14, or have your finger there, I told you we would come back. Some of you are like, oh, man, you need to listen better. See the same Jerusalem-centric Israel having a distinct identity in the kingdom, a restoration of the nation. This is a fulfillment of the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, where he has an offspring ruling and governing Israel. There must be an Israel to rule over. We come to Zechariah 14. If you guys have rolled into that text already, look with me in verse 16. Everyone who survives of all the nations... We're talking after the Battle of Armageddon. That's why he's talking about survivors. All of the nations have come against Jerusalem. They shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to keep the Feast of Booths. That'd be the Feast of Tabernacles, if you've heard that phrase instead. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain, and there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations. Go down to verse 20. On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. The bells, <clears throat> excuse me, Bells on the horses, like equipment in Jerusalem is so sacred. It's devoted to the Lord. I usually don't think of tackle for horses, sweaty leather. Even that is sanctified as gift to the Lord and holy. Everything in Jerusalem, all of Judah, is given to the Lord. Now, the significance of this, if you go back, is all the nations that survive do what every year? Where do they go? And you know what they're described as nations? Again, the kingdom that is coming still has national boundaries, borders, and they're coming into Jerusalem to worship there. This is not heaven yet. Otherwise, there would be no threat of justice if they do not come to worship the Lord. Right? Like, if you don't come, what happens? No rain for you. Drought, famine, economic hardship. So all of the nations gather annually to worship the Lord. When Jesus says, when he comes, then he will reign the disciples here in this, the promise of the coming kingdom where David's offspring will reign, where Israel will be renewed and restored as a nation. It will stand as a light among all the other nations and the world will come to Jerusalem to worship King Jesus. Okay, so I think I've answered most of the questions. When? When he comes, then he'll reign. Two, who is the person? It's the literal offspring of David who has the legal right to the throne. Peoples, the whole world, and in particular, a renewed nation of Israel. The power 
is the final one I want to press in because I think this is where, at least for me, Jesus just kind of like kicks me in the pants. Okay, so so far, like going through Matthew 24 and 25, he has said, be a wise servant who is not leveraging the resources God's entrusted him for your own gain, but use it because he's coming back. We come to the beginning of chapter 25 and we have this parable of the virgins, the foolish virgins that weren't ready because they weren't, they weren't ready for a long marathon of work. And so, and so they're not ready when Jesus' uh, metaphorical groom comes and they're judged. And then we have the parable of the talents where these bags of gold are given to three different slaves. And their, their response is, is rewarded or judged. These are all parables. They're, they're extended metaphors. We come to verse 31, and he strips away the metaphors for the most part. And we have sheep and goats, which is kind of metaphorical, but that's it. Everything else is, is blatantly literal, which is so helpful. Because here's what's frustrating, maybe, if you've been tracking with Jesus so far. He's like, hey, don't waste your years. Work hard. Invest your bag of gold. You're like, what, what do I do? Like, what does that mean to invest my bag of gold? Because I, I don't have one. I know you mean something besides bag of gold. Right? Like, I am not a master with other servants to, to care for. That's not the point. What am I supposed to do? I'm not a virgin waiting for a groom. Right? Like, this is not what's going on in my world. Jesus is using imagery, and all of a sudden he gets real concrete at the very end here. It's very, very kind and good pastoring he gives to us. So the power of the king is exercised. You'll see this in the first couple phrases of each, the sheep and the goats example. So the believers are the sheep, so I'm just going to start using believers rather than sheep and goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, verse 33, but the goats on his left, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. What kingdom? The one where he is king as David's descendant in Jerusalem as the capital of the world. Inherit this kingdom with me. The one the apostles are going to be sitting on these thrones governing the 12 tribes, that kingdom. How long has this kingdom been in preparation? This is God's plan before the world was founded. So when Jesus came to Jerusalem on a donkey, he was humble and lowly, and they rejected him. He did not have to go back to the drawing board. That was always the plan. His kingdom is coming when he returns. So notice then the concrete expression of his power. Come, based on my judgment, you are blessed forever and you're granted access to heaven. Who will let you get into heaven or hell is not Peter at the pearly gates. It's whom? Jesus on his throne. He's going to come. He's going to sit on his throne. He's going to bring all the earth before him. And when he sees his people come before him, he's going to say, welcome into eternal joy. Right? Like eternal joy. This has been prepared for whom? Did you catch it? This is prepared for you. 
I have a birthday coming up in this next year. And do you know my love for certain foods? <laughs> What's funny is you know the punchline before I get there. So I want you to imagine it's my birthday and my wife goes, Mark, I have spent weeks preparing this for you. And I'm like, oh, that's super thoughtful. And she has this massive surprise party with only coconut shrimp. <laughs> I know two things. My wife has made this for her, and my wife has not made this for me. I want you to consider, just in your imagination, if God has spent from before the foundations of the world preparing a kingdom for you. How incredible and overwhelming the experience of eternal joy will be when he says, the gates open. Welcome. If you go back to the previous parable about the talents of, you know, like the, the bags of gold, the talents, one of the things that he mentions there is, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Seems to indicate that not only do we have access, we have positions of honor and influence and leadership as a reward in the kingdom. Designed for you. Now, before you think it's you, you better look and make sure it's you. So who are the you of the sheep and who are the you of the goats? Look with me in verse 35. For I was hungry and you... I'm not going to read through the whole text, but we have hunger, we have a stranger, we have uh, a nakedness, which means you're, you're inappropriately clothed. You're in zero-degree weather and you've got a tank top and swim shorts on. Like, that's the point. I was clothed uh, when I was naked, I was sick, and you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. So, so he's talking about tangible acts of care, isn't he? Tangible acts of doing something for people. Well, actually, for himself, he says. And the question then that it brings is, well, when do we do this to you, Jesus? You have not been on this earth, you've been in heaven. We're awaiting your return to sit on your throne. Where were you when I did these things? The answer Verse 38, they ask the question, verse 39, when do we see you sick? They ask the question again, and then in verse 40, the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I just want you to hear the Christ-centeredness of that answer. The difference between heaven and hell is not works of charity done to people. The difference between heaven and hell is the love and loyalty and devotion to the king. You did it to whom? The king says, you did it to me. You served the king. Well, how do we serve you, king, when you cared for my people? But it's a Christ-centered motive. It's a motive of absolute commitment to the king. 
yet drives his people to serve the people around them. Why do you visit a sick person in the hospital? Because you love the king. Why do you care for someone in prison? Because you know the king of the person in prison. And you know that by serving the person in prison, you're serving their king, your king, whom you love and would die for. The measure by which Jesus evaluates these people is their faith, love, and fidelity to him. So if you struggle with assurance, do you know what you should do? Pursue the king. Love the king. Adore the king. Commit yourself to the king. Trust in his words. Read his words. Listen to his words. Spend time with his people. You know what a lot of us do? We look in the self-investigation of our heart and we just stare at ourselves and we go, man, oh man, I don't know if I believe hard enough. Where is that going to get you? Anxiety, stress, and laziness. Right? Like if, if you're incapacitated out of anxiety, you're doing nothing. You don't feel fit, maybe. You're gripped by worry. You're tied up because you just don't feel joy because you're, you're hurting, because you're struggling. The solution is not to figure you out the solution is to embrace Jesus with your whole heart. The solution is just to come to the king and beg for the mercy of faith. And he will give it. It is to come to the king and worship him. And in his delight, he gives the mercy of confidence. It is to be certain of who your king is and adore him for his beauty. If you look down in the next section, I, I think there's also some real strong rebuky encouragement. So buckle up. Verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Look at the contrast, right? The kingdom's prepared for you. What does hell prepare for? Not you. The devil and his angels. You know, you were intended in Adam's creation to not be condemned. And by our rebellion, by your rebellion and steadfastness in sin, you risk going to hell with the devil. God made hell for him. Why are you going to jump on his bus? Why? Well, because you love you, not the king. How do you know that? Look in the text. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. Verse 43 now. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Verse 44, they will also answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison? And they will answer saying, truly, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. That's the sin of omission. 
not the sin of commission. In other words, I commit some sins, right? Like I can say an unkind word, that's sin. I can fail to do an act of kindness to my poor cold brother wearing a tank top and swim shorts in zero-degree weather who's saying, please help. I'm like, man, get a job. You, you know, I'll pray for you too. Right? Like, like, here is, in Jesus' words here, here is Jesus. And in this brother, represented by this brother, is the king. Can you imagine if Jesus was just doing like secret shopper and he's the man in tank tops, tank top, tank top and shorts. And he's like, Mark, please give me something. And I'm like, get a job. Can you imagine watching that knowing Jesus was the guy? How heartbroken you would be for me. And how you'd be like on the sidelines cheering for me not to be saying get a job. That's every moment with God's people. The unbeliever says things like, I don't like organized religion. The unbeliever says things like, I worship God at home. The unbeliever says, I know I don't always perform, but I'm sincere. The unbeliever credits his own internal judgment and never evaluates Real activity on the basis of loyalty to the king expressing itself in sacrificial deeds of love for his people. In school, tests are fantastic tools. The, we get this all of the times. It happens in sports and everything else. My children, much like their dad, have no shortage of confidence. So it'll be like, you ready for the test? Yes. Have you studied enough? Absolutely. Now, Dad, can we watch TV? I'm like, hmm. Are you sure you're ready for the test? Yes. Okay. Next week. So how'd you do on that test? Silence. That test proves how well they're ready. How do you know if you're ready for Jesus to sit on the throne gather the whole world in front of him, including you, and look at you and say, sheep, goat. How do you know if you're ready? This text here says that if you are failing to express your love for the king by loving his people, you're a goat. I am not trying to stir anyone to anxiety. I'm trying to do the reverse. This is like a practice test this morning. You get to take it and grade it on your own. And it lets you know the real test is coming where Jesus gives you a one-time pass or fail. Is that the grave or in this moment if this comes first? And you have a chance to look at yourself and be like, do I love the king enough that I would take the coat off my back and give it to a brother who needs it? Do I love my money more than my brother do I love my time more than my sick brother who needs a visit? Do I love my own family more than I love my Christian brothers who need my time? 
Can I take my family with me and not lose either? Like, can I love Jesus and love this? Yeah, okay, well, I can do both. Can I love Jesus or must I give this up? Then I give it up in order to love Jesus by caring for his people. If you don't ever serve God's people, you don't love Jesus. Is that clear from the text? I want to be, like, so every once in a while I'm, like, kind of hard. People are like, man, Mark, whew, that was, that was good. Like, you need to go to the hospital now, but it was, you know. So I just want to make sure the text says what I'm saying here. I don't want to soften it, but I also don't want to make it more edgy than it is. Do you hear what this text is saying? Verse 40, the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Energizes me. Like, do you ever feel like you're wasting your breath when you're trying to encourage someone who keeps doing the same dumb sin over and over again? And Jesus is saying, plead with him like I'm him. Spend time with him like I'm him. Give your money to him like I'm him. And at the same time, he's saying, I'll reward you like you did it to me. And I'm thinking, man, I want to do that. I want to invest in my king. Then I look in verse 46, 45 and 46. When you answer them, you say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. And I'm thinking of the times I've let those opportunities slip by. And it is kind of heartbreaking. I also remember a lot of conversations with people who I think are fooled about what genuine Christianity is. And I think it's sincerity that never shapes their behavior. They think it's an emotional high that happens when they sing cool worship songs. Not lived out in the gritty Monday through Saturday days of just loving your child who is a believer as though they are Jesus. Did not do it to one of the least of these. That least reminds us that it's all believers. Right? It's not like, I mean, please, please hear this well. Our church really cares for its pastors. And this verse reminds us, stop it. Care for everybody. Right? Like, pastors do not need a special dose of your love while you leave your needy brothers and sisters behind. All of us represent Jesus to you. So probably, my guess is, if you're, if you're caring for pastors, what you need to do is do something like this. Please don't be like, oh, well, in that case, I just won't care for any of you. That's the wrong way to go with that. Yeah, so I just want to make sure I get heard well on this. So, so let me just close with, with a little bit of a reminder of what the Lord has done in this text. Because he's taken all of these challenges he's given in parables and all of these warnings and parables that are metaphorical language, and he starts to make it concrete. What does it look like to be ready for his coming? What does it look like to be prepared? What does it look like not to get caught flat-footed and, and without having invested yourself in your bags of gold? Well, the person who cares for and serves and loves and invests in others is ready for Jesus to return. Those who leave everyone around them unhelped 
unencouraged with words of comfort or words of rebuke or words of prayer in private that they'll never know about. The person who leaves the gathering unattended, that person needs to be warned that they are probably not a believer. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. When he comes back, it will be a literal kingdom with a renewed, revitalized national Israel as its capital. He will reign as king over all the world, and he will exercise his rule and power as demonstrated by the eternal reward and eternal damnation of those in his kingdom. This is our king. Do you love him? Love his people. Do you believe, trust, and center your life on him? Then serve his sheep. You recall that last little preaching sermon in private that Jesus had with Peter? Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. What's the next words out of his mouth? Feed my sheep. Right? Peter, do you love me? Second time. Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Third time. Do you really love Jesus? Crossway. Hear Jesus' words echo back to you. Feed my lambs. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you so much for governing this whole creation with power, with goodness, and your kind providence. And Father, we are so eager for the day when Jesus Christ will come crashing through the clouds with the heavenly armies in his train. And he will establish, as he steps onto the Mount of Olives, his new kingdom. And he will break down the enemies. And he will give glory to his Father. And he will rescue us from this life. We are eager for the day when with him we will reign, we will govern, we will serve, and we will always love him. Lord, until that day, we are called to be diligent. We thank you so much for the precious words of this text that remind us we do not have to have a PhD in theology to serve the king, to give a cup of water, to visit the sick, to care for the needy, and to take special thought for those who need words of encouragement. Lord, I ask that you would energize this church family to pursue the king, to love him as the center of all that is good and glorious by loving his people. Father, I pray that you would guard us from self-centered lives, guard us from fulfilling the warning of Isaiah that tells us we are like sheep wandering our own way. Father, I ask that you would send your son in glory soon and keep us faithful so that when he comes, he finds this church filled with precious sheep who are ready to be entrusted with much because we've been faithful today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.